It's so exciting to be able to be here this morning, isn't it? To think about the privilege of starting this week and, yeah, even this month. Today's the first day of this 11th month of the year 2015. And what better way could we have imagined to start it than on the first day of the week to assemble for the express purpose of worshiping the God of heaven in truth and in spirit. As mentioned earlier, we're certainly thankful for not only our membership that are here, but any guests or visitors that may be here. We just want to worship in the way God would have us to today. As we come to this part of our worship this morning, for the next few moments, we're going to give some consideration to a section, a particular topic really, in the Word of God. One that I've, I've chosen to entitle by the, the slide on the wall to my left. You'll notice the particular wording, perhaps, taken word for word from that statement in Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to, unto him that makest him drunk. As we develop some considerations or at least thoughts about that particular verse as well as a number of others that touch that particular subject this morning, let's begin it by noticing the very first word of that verse. It is a little three-letter word, woe, W-O-E. So many times in the Word of God that word occurs and following it or at least associated with it are remarkably pointed and powerful statements of warning about certain activities. In fact, there's even descriptions of the 108 times in the Bible that you find that word woe. I've selected only an exceedingly small handful of them. In Lamentations 5.16, you notice near the close of that book, a woe pronounced upon those that were guilty of sin. You notice in Micah 2 verse 1, one more time, woe to him that deviseth iniquity. Those two have especially reminded us about woe and the sadness and sorrow that goes with choosing a particular behavior that is distant from God. Maybe one final one drawn from the very lips of our Savior in Matthew 23. In fact, I couldn't just pick one verse there because Jesus used the word so many times in that chapter in reference to the behavior of the Pharisees and in the fact that they would strive to make a convert but made him twice more a child of hell than they were. That's a very strong statement. They were likened into whited sepulchers that appeared so presentable and so favorable, but yet were full of dead men's bones. To say all of that is to say this. In this text before us this morning, the word woe appears. Let's develop first a historical appreciation for the usage of it there, and then we'll draw some lessons for your benefit in mind today. As we do all of that first, let's cast the spotlight again on that text. We would never would want to use a passage to teach what was not in it originally. And so, here are some basic facts of the case. Now, these facts, in many cases, are, are well understood. The people of God had not acted as they should have. We remember they were guilty of sin. In fact, they were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of a number of other behaviors that were not characteristic of service to God. And therefore, in 606 B.C., God allowed the Babylonian armies to come against them and to begin to take them into captivity. Ultimately, that would last for about 20 years until ultimately the final defeat of Jerusalem came. But it all began in 606 B.C. And you'll notice in those comments, God had a plan. He wasn't casting His people off for good. 
His goal was to let them go into captivity so they could learn a lesson. They could learn what sinfulness does. And they can learn, of course, through that, the nature of faithfulness to God. Often you and I realize that discipline can be a great thing. A child who is disciplined will then learn that that behavior is not acceptable and the goal is that they'll not do that again. In a similar way, God allowed Judah to be punished. Off into Babylon she went, but now the observation comes and that's the setting for the book of Habakkuk. God has some statements for the prophet. In chapter number 1, God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to let the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, conquer my people. I'm going to let them put them into captivity because my people are sinners. And I want them to repent and I want them to change. You'll notice Habakkuk's immediately puzzled. God, how could you let this happen? These Babylonians you're talking about, they're more wicked than your people. How could you let them conquer the very people of God who, although they're not great, they're at least better off than these Babylonians? Remember God's plan. God could see the future. He knew what was going to transpire. And God told Habakkuk, verse 13, I am of pure eyes that to behold iniquity. My people need to pass through the crucible of suffering and the crucible of punishment so that they'll learn better than this. You'll notice then about the middle of that slide. God was quick then to inform Habakkuk of something. The statement is this. To Habakkuk, God said, I'm not saying these Babylonians are righteous people. I'm not saying these Chaldeans are godly and sinless people because they're not. God said, this is what I'm going to do. I will let them serve as a particular instrument to bring my people into captivity and to subdue them. And then later, I'm going to punish the Babylonians for their own sin. God's will is always going to be done. As he makes reference then in chapter 2 of Habakkuk to the sins of the Babylonians, several things are listed. I've just mentioned them for you very quickly. The Babylonians, beginning in verse 9, were guilty of stealing. They would take what didn't belong to them. God says, woe to them that steal and that act like thieves. Notice the word woe. God says, I'm going to judge them for that. But that's not all. The evil of covetousness. God says these Babylonians are covetous people and that's evil and it's wrong. I'll judge them for that. In the third place, they profit by ungodliness. And the word woe is used to describe it. God says, I'll judge them for that. Finally, they were guilty of idolatry. They too did not worship the true God of heaven. They were guilty of that and God says, I'll judge them for that. You'll notice so far I've listed four things and God says, woe to the Babylonians because of every one of them. But there's a fifth one. It's in verse 15 and it was our lesson text this morning. Would you notice it again with me as, as I read it? Habakkuk 2, verse 15, with the setting before us, we now know this was an activity of which the Babylonians were guilty. And God says, I'm going to judge them for that. Let's see what it was. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. As you can see, there is a woe now pronounced on the Babylonians having to do with some liquid they were drinking. 
some liquid in which they were taking it in with the various behaviors that were associated with it. I wonder what it was. I wonder what the particular features of it would have been. Well, first, as you look at the bottom of that slide, we aren't left to wonder very long because we now find before us the particular liquid to which the inspired writer referred and of which the Babylonians were so guilty was the liquid, of course, known as those inebriating alcoholic varieties. You and I know today, although we live so many centuries this side of Habakkuk's day, the problem is still rampant. The problem is still overwhelming, at least for many, and it poses itself in such a variety of contexts. You'll notice at the bottom, you and I live in an age when, quite frankly, there's a multi-billion dollar liquor international business. Fascinating in many ways, isn't it? As you try to grab, grapple with the actual numbers, the largest beer maker in the world is the Anheuser-Busch Company. And they are less, still less than 30% of the total volume of worldwide sales. And yet they're the biggest. They themselves, according to their own numbers, are such that 10 and a half billion gallons a year. I said billion. Thus, if you ask how many worldwide all the producers are making, we probably are approaching 100 billion gallons of alcoholic beverages a year. If you divide all of that out, that'd be enough for every man, woman, and child on earth to have 14 gallons of it. The problem is seemingly only worsening with each passing year. The companies are merging. The production supply seem to be larger, and those imbibing it also seem to be increasing. Isn't it interesting that in Habakkuk's day, the same kind of thing was discussed? Let's make some observations if we might. First, what about the problem that Habakkuk mentioned? That verse again, verse 15 of Habakkuk chapter 2. Remember, the word woe was used. This was not something encouraged. It was something for which God was going to judge them. It was something for which they themselves had acted inappropriately. You'll notice at the top, a woe pronounced upon those that gave his neighbor drink. That put that bottle to him and makest him drunk. As you look at some of the words that are used in the inspired text, I would specifically draw attention to that word bottle. That word in the original language carries with it the thought of wrath, hot displeasure, great heat if you please. And it didn't have anything to do with the way it was made. It had to do with the heat of God's anger directed to them for this. This was no minor matter. It was exceedingly powerful and something for which they were going to give an answer to the great God of heaven. May I ask you to notice that another set of ideas that goes with that word bottle I find terribly interesting, and I'm sure you will too. The word venom, the word poison. In fact, I would call to your attention the American standard rendering of that same verse. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink to thee that addest thy venom and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look upon their nakedness. All of us would readily agree that venom is a toxic thing. Too much of it and it'll kill you, be it from a spider, from a snake, or anything else. 
A venom is an exceedingly toxic character matter, isn't it? And yet, it appears that that word has a sense in which it appears in a passage like this one. Those who are giving their neighbor drink in the ancient Chaldean Empire were such that God's judgment was going to fall upon them in part because of alcoholism, in part because of the very matter of drinking these things. As you go to the bottom of that slide, so many passages might well be listed that make mention of the wrath of God directed to a usage not unlike this one. Jeremiah 10, 25, Nahum 1, verses 2 and 6, all of them bring before us a problem that you and I should consider pretty seriously. We're going to devote almost the entirety of the rest of our lesson today making some observations about the liquor industry, the Christian's disposition toward it, circumstances the Bible mentions relative to the subject, but may we never lose sight that a woe from heaven has been pronounced in relation to those that would support and encourage liquor in any way it occurs socially. That's what he said to the Chaldeans. Has he changed his mind? Has anything occurred today that would make that sentence different? You'll notice at the very bottom, the very last thing mentioned in this text before us in Habakkuk 2.15, the purpose was to look on their nakedness. That word so frequently is employed in the Bible in the sense of taking advantage of another, to avail yourself of what they have. And it would seem the Chaldeans were thus very much encouragers of alcohol so they could ultimately take advantage of those that were drunken with it or those that had imbibed it. Today we still know something like that happens often, sometimes sexually but sometimes not. People encourage others to drink because there's something in it for them. As we discuss all of this, our interest is not what the world thinks, but what does the Bible say? What about social drinking? What about the features that the Word of God would have you and have me to understand? Because God loves us, and He doesn't want us to be found guilty of anything like the Day of Judgment that would cause us to lose our soul. As we begin to notice that, just a few comments, but we will look at each one in some detail. The first one. I would ask you to consider is this one. Alcohol and the company it keeps. Alcohol and the company it keeps. I think all of us have probably learned from our parents and yea, just from casual observation that you can learn a great deal about something or someone by noticing the company that it or they keep. If something's always associated with what's bad or what's evil or what's hurtful or what's damaging, it's not hard to conclude it's best to stay away from that in every regard and in every way. May I ask, what is the company which alcohol keeps? What seems to go along with it? And more than anything else, what cohorts does the Bible give it? I'm sure your observation and mine would readily lead us to observe some of these things. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 6. As Paul addressed those comments to the Corinthian congregation, he pointed out to them, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now already that sounds like a very noteworthy question. The unrighteous won't go to heaven. That's easily understood and known. Now the question is, who are these unrighteous to which Paul refers? Does he give us any listing of them? 
he begins to list ten categories of individuals, ten categories of behavior, ten categories of conduct. One by one, you can begin to notice them. The first five, things like this. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals. What's that, Paul? Those that are guilty of fornication, those that are guilty of adultery, those that are guilty of idolatry, even those guilty of homosexuality, they'll not go to heaven. What else, Paul? Verse 10, he lists five more. And among these, things like extortioners, revilers, drunkards. Those who take alcohol and imbibe it are cataloged with these others that you and I have just listed. Would you consider that company a good company? Any parent would encourage their child, you be careful the company you keep. You and I know well, 1 Corinthians 15, still says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Even the Bible warns us to watch carefully those with whom you keep company and look at the company of alcohol. Could it be any worse? We notice then the alcohol finds its consideration with these and doesn't it then easily lead to conclusion it must be avoided. And this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. To say then that its company is so terrible. What about point number two? Now you and I notice the usage of that word drunkard in that text in 1 Corinthians 6. But look at what else might be asserted in relation to this matter of the social consumption of alcohol. May we again keep in mind that we're surrounded by this. I don't know how many TV commercials in most sporting events would probably advertise it, encourage it, and they always then put it at the, at the bottom of the very last slide, please drink responsibly. How can you drink responsibly when you've already drunk so much you don't even know anymore what responsible is? Kind of ironic, isn't it? The thought is, look at some of these verses. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, again, one more time, from the days of the Old Testament, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. We learn almost immediately that there it's a deceiver. It promises one thing but doesn't deliver. It will lead you to do what you never would have imagined, to say what you never would have thought, and to behave in ways that are truly embarrassing. Notice it's a mocker. Not only that, its deception is cataloged in ways that we appreciate when it goes on to say it's a brawler. It leads you to have mental ability, uh, it leads you to have mental disposition that itself is not becoming of what you know you would like to be. Sad, isn't it, to consider at least for a moment that, that consideration of alcohol. In Ephesians 5, verse 18 in the New Testament, you notice there that Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, and remember, in the ancient era, they knew well how to make alcoholic beverages. I understand very well that we live in a day today when it's even more prolific Companies can churn out thousands and thousands of bottles of it a day. Well, in the ancient era, they knew how to make it too. And might we say, it has to be made. Alcohol doesn't make itself. You can't just take grape juice, put it in a bottle, and put it on a shelf for a little while and, and make drinkable alcohol. 
It has to be kept at a certain temperature, and it has to have the right amount of yeast and sugar in it. And if it doesn't, it's even more toxic, and it's certainly not potable. It has to be made, and the ancients knew how to make it. Even Noah knew how to make it back in Genesis chapter 9. But you'll notice in light of all of that, that statement that Paul makes to every one of us, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Some have looked upon that and have improperly deduced what Paul never said. When he says, wherein is excess, that wasn't a reference to how much you drink. Excess has reference to the kind of behavior that goes with any amount of it. Wherein is riot, wherein is excess. Paul says, stay away from this. According to Young's lexicon of the Greek language, the word there that Paul used means from first to last. The description of a process from beginning to end. The very first amount you take makes you a violator of Ephesians 5.18. Might we then notice that as Paul addresses that for us, doesn't it remind us in strength that that's just one of some other verses that challenge us to appreciate God's love on a subject like this one. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 8, there is a commandment given to any who would be pleasing to God. And the command is this, you must be sober. Be sober, he said. Let us all be sober. The question becomes, what does sober mean? I would submit that that word has been hijacked by the, by the alcohol community. And now it just means to, again, not be overwhelmed with alcohol. But that's not what the Greek word meant. The Greek word means to be free from intoxicants. To be free from them. That means not to have any of it. The same kind of arguments that you could use, supposedly, to endorse the social consumption of alcohol, you could use to... Take cocaine, marijuana, anything else. And the Bible condemns all of them for the purpose of social recreational activity. You and I notice on this occasion, we must be sober. We need the full capacity of our mental capabilities so that we're aware of what the devil is doing. We can appreciate the kinds of chicanery that he sets before us and we can avoid it. How can we possibly avoid the tricks and snares of the devil if we aren't in a right, strong enough mind to appreciate it? The devil is subtle, Genesis 3.1. And we know that the particulars of 2 Corinthians 2 and 11 remind us he's able to transform himself into an angel of light. If he's that tricky and subtle, we sure don't want to be mentally impaired and try to stay free from him. The social consumption of alcohol closes that particular slide, and the two points have been rather strong, haven't they? Why don't we give thought to another one? As if some of these initial statements weren't enough, let's let Peter join in the discussion. In the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, even he has some comments to encourage all of us. Would you please notice how they're developed? The fourth chapter of 1 Peter Although that book occurs, again, relatively near the end of that New Testament set of documents, how mindful we must be about the train of thought and the movement found therein. Peter was discussing the issues of the Gentile behavior. 
the various ways in which Gentiles had typically interacted and behaved. And he begins to list a number of the sins of which they were guilty. Our interest is really only three of them. I've tried to list those particular three for your consideration. But earlier in that chapter, might I invite you to notice verse number 3 begins like this. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. As Paul addressed these comments to some Christians in that area, he says there was a time in the distant past when we did behave in ways perhaps like this. Verse 3, we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now again, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant list. Abominable idolatries, lusts. But you notice three of the six things listed were very intriguing, and I've tried to ask you to note them. First, you notice mention is made, and it's the third element in the list, but excess of wine. Now you'll notice that word excess of wine, some translations put as drunkenness, and so I use that word instead. But the point is, look with me at the Greek rendering. That word literally means to bubble over with wine. It does clearly refer to a state when one has drunk a lot of alcoholic beverage. You notice it's bad. It's not something approved, it's condemned. But Peter doesn't stop there. The next word is the word revelings. I would ask you to notice again what that means in the original language. What would the original hearers have concluded concerning it? Merrymaking, carousing, revelry. It has to do with feasting and apparently liquids that would go with it. The only other time in the whole New Testament that word occurs is in Romans 13, 13, and everyone's admonished to stay away from it. Easy to see that whatever amount of liquid goes with that is condemned. But there's a third word, banquetings. And you'll notice that reference is a very innocent-sounding thing. A drinking excursion, a drinking party. You and I can imagine the scene, a person gets off work, just stops off on the way home, has just a beer or two. That's exactly the kind of thing discussed here. And Peter said it's again condemned. Whether it be excess of wine, whether it be revelings, whether it be banquetings, it didn't make any difference. The amount ref referred to in these was a matter to which the God of heaven looked with disfavor. Surely in light of those things, isn't it significant? Look at what the next verse says. And I think this points a strong word of encouragement to every one of us. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them. When you and I are baptized into Christ, even if alcohol was a part of our life in the past, it will be no longer. It has to be repented of and given up. And others that you work with or go to school with, they're probably not going to understand. You mean you won't drink with me? You mean you won't go after work and enjoy a cold Bud Light with me? No, I won't because my Savior has condemned it. No, I won't because the Bible does not approve it. I'll lose my soul if I do. They're not going to understand in so many cases. Because to them, it's fun, it's frivolity. 
It's what having a good time is all about, but it's not to the Christian. We know there's a home in heaven waiting, and we don't want to jeopardize it. In fact, forfeit it by taking alcoholic beverages. They think it's strange that you don't go along with them. May you and I have the mental fortitude to not go along with them. Don't let peer pressure force you or me into anything that makes use of this or gives any support to it. Because you'll notice we come to one last observation, and the lesson will be yours and mine today. When we think about alcoholic beverages, some, if they know very little about the Bible, will almost immediately mention, but didn't Jesus turn water to wine? If it's good enough for Him, good enough for me, thank you for your concern, but I'm going to have my cold bud light all I want. May we never abuse the passage of John chapter 2 to use it to teach something like that. Let's revisit for just a moment, very briefly, some of the comments to, that might be made concerning that paragraph in, in John chapter 2. First of all, as you notice, this was the Lord's first miracle. John tells us that. When he attended that marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, his mother, and of course he became aware of the fact, they have no wine. And Jesus gave command to fill those water pots with water. And you remember, in terms of the amount provided, we're told that the firkin was the particular amount used, and every one of them, when we take it in totality, there would have been somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine generated on this occasion by that marvelous work of the Master. When we think about that amount of alcohol, perhaps we can immediately, or rather that amount of wine, may we immediately at least interestingly consider the word wine. That word occurs a lot in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And as the Bible writers use that word, it does not always suggest alcoholic content. There are clear times when it obviously means what's not alcoholic. For instance, in Isaiah 65, 8, we have there a reference, there's wine in the cluster of a grape. Now, what's that? That's pure grape juice, and yet it's called wine. In Matthew 9, verse 17, we remember Jesus on that occasion used it to refer to what was not alcoholic. The context tells us that clearly. Now, it is true that there are verses in which the word wine does refer to what was alcoholic. Maybe a clear lesson in that for all of us is the context has to be the guide. Just because a particular passage makes reference to it does not mean God endorses it for social consumption. In fact, what was under discussion may well, of course, have been just grape juice, or at least what was not fermented. As we close that slide and look at the next one, might we perhaps appreciate these thoughts about what else occurred in John chapter 2? It's easy to note, of course, that our Savior never ever sinned, not even once. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 4.15 that He never ever sinned, even though He was tempted in all points like as we are. Now, the fact that the Old Testament had condemned this, that is, alcohol for social consumption, you and I know the Lord could not and did not make alcoholic beverages in John chapter 2. If He did, He would have sinned. And the fact He didn't sin leads inevitably to that observation. But what's more, you and I can note this. 
it's very significant to note the wording of John chapter 2. Could I draw your attention to, verses, to verse number 10? John chapter 2, verse number 10. We'll begin in verse number 9 with our reading, but the text informs us, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Isn't it interesting that this, this bridegroom, and for that matter as well as the, the steward of the feast, upon tasting it, he was able to readily deduce the fine quality of this wine that Jesus had made. Seems clear then, if his mental capacity was still that, he hadn't been guzzling all this time, and he knew this fine wine that he had tasted. It seems like that observation alone suggests that the wine present was not alcoholic. It was not of that variety that many in our world today would perhaps wish us to believe that it was. Maybe in light of that final comment, our lesson in close leads to that set of conclusions. We're surrounded again by those who have an interest in alcoholic beverage for social consumption. And yet Habakkuk stated in verse chapter 2, verse 15, as God spoke through him, woe to the man that would give his neighbor drink to make him drunk. It's a sad thing to appreciate what alcohol brings. Its company is terrible. We've learned the Bible condemns it even in small amounts socially. And we've also appreciated that in Peter's presentation of 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, what a difference you and I will be. We'll not improve of it in the world. The world will perhaps look with strangeness upon us, but it doesn't deter us. You and I will look forward to entering heaven, of course, with the faithfulness encumbered with the blood of Christ. Today, I know that as you and I think about the world in which we live, many families are bothered by alcohol. There's a family member, there's perhaps a friend or a neighbor, others who have fallen beneath the addiction of it or fallen beneath the love of it. May you and I help them see the light. Pray for them, encourage them, but always to help them see that it's a wrong thing and it's sinful. Today, as we give thought to those things, how grand it is to consider God's love. He's warned us about this so that we won't be caught off guard and we will not be caught in a way unprepared. May we have our mind ready so that even when temptation might be put before us, we'll be ready to say no. And we'll be ready to remain, of course, in the friendly confines of the faithfulness of God. This very day, as we draw this lesson to its point of summary or conclusion, there might be someone in the audience that's not a member of the body of Christ. Someone who's never rendered initial obedience to the gospel. If that would be the need of your heart today, don't leave this building in your lost condition. If you know that Jesus died for you, you know that you're a sinner, why not in fact avail yourself of that gospel plan of salvation, believing in Jesus as a Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If you have known the sweetness of that walk with Him, but there have been matters occurring in life and you've now reached a point where 
may be like a ton of bricks falling on your head. You now know I'm not right with God. I've allowed things to happen, developments to take place. I'm nowhere near the faithfulness that I know I need to have. Come back to your first love. Beseech us to pray to God on your behalf, and we'd be happy to do it. And God will be there to provide strength and support and encouragement to you if we could help you in either of those ways today. We would urge you to come, and the Lord would invite you to do so even now at this moment while together we stand and while we sing.